bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books are in you are those used as sources for our show. We will be sharing with you tonight an interesting selection from one of these volumes. Assisted, as always, by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, I do want to thank listeners who expressed their concern over the situation with my missing owl, Strix. Uh, it is an ongoing issue, I'm sorry to say, as we've still not seen or have any further clues as to where she might be. Mr. Ridenauer is still driving around the neighborhood looking for her, though. Yes, but I don't want to talk about that. I've pretty much resolved myself to the loss. I will probably do my last drive this week. You never know. Well, enough on that. Uh, Devastating losses don't make for entertaining podcasts, as I've said before. But we do have some very thoughtful listeners who empathize with your loss. Uh, I think the listeners want to talk about Halloween. True. And we did save part two of our listener feedback for this episode. So the answers you'll hear came in via our Facebook group as well as our Patreon blog. As with the last episode, those who responded via our Patreon page will be designated with a little audio flourish, a little embellishment to emphasize their uh, elevated status as financial supporters of the show. You are all very appreciated. And uh, rather than adding those in post, I'll be doing those live this time, Mrs. Carswell, so you can uh, hear them and won't be confused as to how long the pauses should be or anything like that. Okay, I guess that will be easier. I wasn't really confused. Well, it will take the guessing out of the process. Okay. So, last time the question posed was, when does the Halloween season begin for you? We got a whole range of answers. End of September, whenever it starts getting cool, 1st of October. And of course... Some listeners said Halloween was year-round for them. I'm not even sure how I would answer that myself. Uh, much as I'd like to be curmudgeonly traditionalist and say it's the last two weeks of October, I do empathize with those who don't want to really see this season limited like that. It's sort of Halloween year-round on Bone and Sickle. I know, but I still do wish I could be more curmudgeonly. Well, this question was about the season itself, or what do you call it? The term spooky season has become popular, and we asked if you use that term yourself instead of Halloween season. And this one does have a correct answer. I find spooky season a bit childish sounding, like calling horror films scary movies. It's sort of infantilizing, like adults eating cupcakes or smiling in photos. But it is descriptive. Well, I'm probably in the minority, but... Let's see what the listeners say. Do you want to start your Halloween music? Oh, yes. Uh, so, this is our segment. 
spooky season, yes or no? So, it looks like there are a couple listeners who do agree with you. Jonathan R. says, Not a fan of the spooky season label. Too cutesy for my tastes. Exactly. Tim S. says, Never spooky season, but to each their own. I prefer Halloween Tide, but that is very specific to the end of October, beginning of November. Hallow Tide. Yeah, makes sense. Well put. But there are more listeners who are okay rather than not okay with the expression. Mm. Cameron Smith says, Spooky season, Halloween season, season of the witch. Whatever you call it is fine. It's my favorite time of year, and it never seems to last long enough. The last part is true. And so there are also these patrons. Rachel P., who suggested the term calendar Halloween last episode says, I think it's acceptable. Oh, that doesn't mean she likes it. Well, she says it's acceptable, and these two also agree that it's okay. Brandon Allendorf and Victoria Howard. And then there was the group that asked, uh, which spooky season? Yes, Brad Fisher asked that, meaning whether the Halloween season was Halloween or Christmas. And Eric Thorpe Moskin, who also mentions that Yuletide is a particularly auspicious time for spookiness because of the wild hunt. Very good, and attentive listener. And there are a couple patrons. Erica Cooper who mentions that alongside Halloween, Christmas Eve is the best for ghost stories. And we'll have another one this year. And patron Jennifer. She grew up in Scotland and now lives in the U.S. And though they do celebrate Halloween there... I hope so. It's kind of the holiday's birthplace. But apparently they don't have the whole lead-up of a season like we do. She says... Now living abroad, I've been exposed to a lot more American influences, and I do think it's fun to decorate, have themed drinks, snacks, etc. for longer. Our Halloween is the envy of the world. I guess so. She also points out that Halloween and Christmas are only two of the dates that are supposed to be spooky in Scotland. Or, as she says, occasions when the other world is thought to be particularly active. Yes, there's one for each season, actually. And there were also a couple people who suggested alternatives to the term spooky season. Oh, okay. Jocelyn Folgert says, I've heard Halloween described as Dracula Christmas. Hmm. And another patron, Eric, says, I prefer the term high holy season Excellent. I think that's it for this particular question, but we should do this again sometime. It's nice to get to know a bit more about our listeners. Doesn't hurt, no. And even better, it's kept us from arguing for the last uh, eight minutes. We don't always argue. Ah, ah, look, right there. That breaks the streak. That wasn't really arguing. Regardless, eight minutes is more than long enough for this uh, warm-up chatter. Uh, So let's start the show. Episode 118, 
Ghouls. I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and am currently working on a related volume. Once that work is complete, we will be returning to our old format, by the way. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including not one, but two bonus episodes. Um, I usually have a bit more on Patreon at the end of the show, but we'll be skipping that this time as we just did the whole five-minute announcement on the uh, trick-or-treat-by-mail Patreon option added for the season. So, uh, before we jump into the show, I should note the source. This is the 15th chapter from The Book of Werewolves, the classic 1865 study on the subject, written by Sabine Baring Gould, an Anglican priest, as best known actually for composing the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers. Baring Gould was also an early collector of folk songs and wrote prolifically on folklore, church history, and local lore in England. While uh, our episode is called Ghouls, and ghouls are indeed what the author had in mind when he wrote the chapter, he called it something different in an attempt to better harmonize with the book's theme of human-animal transformations, namely, the human hyena. It is well known that Oriental romance is full of stories of violators of graves. Eastern superstition attributes to certain individuals a passion for unearthing corpses and mangling them. Of a moonlit night, weird forms are seen stealing among the tombs and burrowing into them with their long nails, desiring to reach the bodies of the dead ere the first streak of dawn compels them to retire. These ghouls, as they are called, are supposed generally to require the flesh of the dead for incantations or magical compositions, but very often they are actuated by the sole desire of rending the sleeping corpse and disturbing its repose. There is every probability that these ghouls were no more creations of the imagination, but were actual resurrectionists. Human fat and the hair of a corpse which has grown in the grave form ingredients in many a necromantic recipe, and the witches who compounded these diabolical mixtures would unearth corpses in order to obtain the requisite ingredients. It was the same in the Middle Ages, and to such an extent did the fear of ghouls extend that it was common in Brittany for churchyards to be provided with lamps kept burning during the night that witches might be deterred from venturing under cover of darkness to open the graves. 
Fornari gives the following story of a ghoul in his History of Sorcerers. In the beginning of the 15th century, there lived at Baghdad an aged merchant who had grown wealthy in his business and who had an only son to whom he was tenderly attached. He resolved to marry him to the daughter of another merchant, a girl of considerable fortune, but without any personal attractions. Abul Hassan, the merchant's son, on being shown the portrait of the lady, requested his father to delay the marriage till he could reconcile his mind to it. Instead, however, of doing this, he fell in love with another girl, the daughter of a sage, and he gave his father no peace till he consented to the marriage, which was the object of his affections. The old man stood out as long as he could, but finding that his son was bent on acquiring the hand of the fair Nadilla, and was equally resolute not to accept the rich and ugly lady, he did what most fathers under such circumstances are constrained to do. He acquiesced. The wedding took place with great pomp and ceremony, and a happy honeymoon ensued, which might have been happier, but for one little circumstance, which led to very serious consequences. Abu Hassan noticed that his bride quitted the nuptial couch as soon as she thought her husband was asleep, and did not return to it till an hour before dawn. Filled with curiosity, Hassan, one night, feigned sleep and saw his wife rise and leave the room as usual. He followed cautiously and saw her enter a cemetery. By the straggling moonbeams, he beheld her go into a tomb. He stepped in after her. The scene within was horrible. A party of ghouls were assembled with the spoils of the graves they had violated and were feasting on the flesh of the long-buried corpses. His own wife, who, by the way, never touched supper at home, played no inconsiderable part in the hideous banquet. As soon as he could safely escape, Abul Hassan stole back to his bed. He said nothing to his bride till next evening when supper was laid and she declined to eat. Then he insisted on her partaking, and when she positively refused, he exclaimed wrathfully, Yes, you keep your appetite for your feast with the ghouls. Nadilla was silent. She turned pale and trembled, and without a word sought her bed. At midnight she rose, fell on her husband with her nails and teeth, tore his throat, and having opened a vein, attempted to suck his blood. But Abu Hassan, springing to his feet, threw her down and with a blow, killed her. She was buried the next day. Three days after, at midnight, she reappeared, attacked her husband again and again, attempted to suck his blood. He fled from her and, on the morrow, opened her tomb, burned her to ashes, and cast them in the Tigris. This story connects the ghoul with the vampire. As has been seen in a former chapter, 
The werewolf and the vampire are closely related. That the ancients held the same belief, that the witches violate corpses, is evident from the third episode in The Golden Ass of Apuleius. I will only quote the words of the crier. I pray thee, tell me, replied I, of what kind are the duties attached to this funeral guardianship? Duties, quoth the crier, why, keep wide awake all night with thine eyes fixed steadily upon the corpse, neither winking nor blinking nor looking to the right nor left, either to the one side or the other, be it even little. For the witches, infamous wretches that they are, can slip out of their skins in an instant and change themselves into the form of any animal they have in mind. And then they crawl along so slyly that the eyes of justice, nay, the eyes of the sun himself, are not keyed enough to perceive them. At all events, their wicked devices are infinite in number and variety, and whether it be in the shape of a bird or a dog or a mouse, or even of a common housefly, that they work their evil magic if thou art not vigilant in the extreme. Nevertheless, as regards the reward, it will be four to six ori. Although tis a perilous service, wilt thou receive no more. Nay, hold. I have almost forgotten to give thee a necessary caution. Clearly understand that if the corpse be not restored to the relatives entire, the deficient pieces of flesh torn off by the teeth of the witches must be replaced from the face of the sleeping guardian. And here again we have the rending of corpses connected with changes of form. Marcassus relates that after a long war in Syria during the night, troops of Lamia, female evil spirits, appeared upon the field of battle, unearthing the hastily buried bodies of the soldiers and devouring the flesh off their bones. They were pursued, fired upon, and some young men succeeded in killing a considerable number. But during the day, they had, all of them, the forms of wolves or hyenas. That there is a foundation of truth in these horrible stories, and that it is quite possible for a human being to be possessed of a depraved appetite for rending corpses, is proved by an extraordinary case brought before a court in Paris as late as July 10th, 1849. The details are given with fullness in the Medico-Psychological Journal for that month and year, they are too revolting for reproduction. I will, however, give an outline of this remarkable case. In the autumn of 1848, several of the cemeteries in the neighborhood of Paris were found to have been entered during the night and graves to have been disturbed. The deeds were not those of medical students for the bodies had not been carried off, but were found lying about the tombs in fragments. It was at first supposed that the perpetrator of these outrages must have been a wild beast, but footprints in the soft earth left no doubt that it was a man. Close watch was kept at Père Lachaise, but after a few corpses had been mangled there, the outrages ceased. In the winter, another cemetery was ravaged and it was not till March in 1849 that a spring gun 
which had been set up in the Montparnasse Cemetery, went off during the night and warned the guardians of the place that the mysterious visitor had fallen into their trap. They rushed to the spot, only to see a dark figure in a military coat leap the wall and disappear in the gloom. Marks of blood, however, gave evidence that he had been hit by the gun when it had discharged. At the same time, a fragment of blue cloth torn from the mantle was obtained and offered a clue towards the identification of the ravisher of the tombs. On the following day, the police went from barrack to barrack inquiring whether officer or man were suffering from a gunshot wound. By this means, they discovered the person. He was a junior officer in the 1st Infantry Regiment of the name Betron. He was taken to the hospital to be cured of his wound, and on his recovery he was tried by court-martial. His history was this. He had been educated in the theological seminary of Langres till, at the age of 20, he entered the army. He was a young man of retiring habits, frank and cheerful to his comrades as to be greatly beloved by them, of feminine delicacy and refinement, and subject to fits of depression and melancholy. In February 1847, as he was walking with a friend in the country, he came to a churchyard, the gate of which stood open. The day before, a woman had been buried, but the sextant had not completed filling the grave, and he'd been engaged upon it on the present occasion, when a storm of rain had driven him for shelter. Bertrand noticed the spade and pick lying beside the grave, and, to use his own words, At this sight, dark thoughts came to me. I had a violent headache. My heart was beating violently. I no longer was possessed of myself. He managed, by some excuse, to get rid of his companion, and then, returning to the churchyard, he caught up a spade and began to dig into the grave. Soon, I dragged the corpse out of the earth and began to hash it with the spade, without well knowing what I was about. A laborer saw me, and I laid myself flat on the ground till he was out of sight, and then I cast the body back into the grave. I then went away, bathed in a cold sweat to a little grove where I reposed for several hours, notwithstanding the cold rain which fell in a condition of complete exhaustion. When I rose, my limbs were as if broken and my head weak. The same prostration and sensation followed each attack. Two days after, I returned to the cemetery and opened the grave with my hands. My hands bled, but I did not feel the pain. I tore the corpse to shreds and flung it back into the pit. He had no further attack for a few months till his regiment came to Paris. As he was one day walking in the gloomy, shadowy alleys of Perrachaise, the same feeling came over him like a flood. In the night, he climbed the wall and dug up a little girl of seven years old. He tore her in half. A few days later, he opened the grave of a woman who had died in childbirth and had lain in the grave for 13 days. On the 16th of November, 
He dug up an old woman of 50 and, ripping her to pieces, rolled amongst the fragments. He did the same to another corpse on the 12th of December. These are only a few of the numerous cases of violation of tombs to which he owned. It was the night of the 15th of March that the spring gun shot him. Bertrand declared at his trial that whilst he was in the hospital, he had not felt any desire to renew his attempts, and that he considered himself cured of his horrible propensities, for he had seen men dying in the beds around him, and now, he said, I am cured because today I am afraid of death. The fits of exhaustion which followed his deeds are very remarkable as they precisely resemble those which followed the berserker rages of the Northmen and the expeditions of the lycanthropes. The case of Officer Bertrand is indubitably most singular and anomalous. It scarcely bears the character of insanity, but seems to point, rather, to a species of diabolical possession. At first, the episodes chiefly followed upon his drinking wine, but after a while they came upon him without any cause. The manner in which he mutilated the dead was different. Some he chopped with the spade, others he tore and ripped with his teeth and nails. Sometimes he tore the mouth open and rent the face back to the ears. He opened the stomachs and pulled off the limbs. Although he dug up the bodies of seven men, he felt no inclination to mutilate them, whereas he delighted in rending female corpses. He was sentenced to a year's imprisonment. And now, a bit of poetry as we close our show with Carswell's Corner. Our poem tonight is by the British classical scholar and poet, A.E. for Alfred Edward Hausman. He's not particularly known for light or comic verse, but he did get a little playful here and there. One of his best-known poems, written in 1896 to an athlete dying young, expresses his characteristic preoccupation with death, a concern increasingly found in his work on the eve of the First World War. This poem, you might say, deals with something similar but in a different vein. It's called Infant Innocence The grizzly bear is huge and wild. He has devoured the infant child. The infant child is not aware he has been eaten by the bear. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do, which very much helps the visibility of Bone and Sickle on the streaming services. We'll skip the Patreon plug this time around, as I mentioned, but we do have some new subscribers we want to acknowledge. Thank you to a talented goose, Krista Marta, who upped her pledge and made it annual, and Jay Martinez. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, 
Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening.